Thank you so much for the church that we're able to spend our time in, that we're able to grow uh, fellowship with one another, to be able to encourage one another in growth in Christ. I ask that you help us to continue in our individual processes of growing as we're trying to learn to depend upon you more and more, uh, to to depend upon your provision in every moment, especially in the midst of all the trials and tribulations we're going through. I ask that you help us to really truly understand the sustenance that you give us and have already provided for us so that we can better trust you in the future. I pray for this, and I also ask that you be with us in our study today as we're looking at yet another controversial subject relating to the rapture. And I ask that you really guide us um, and give us a heightened level of discernment as we're looking at this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning, everybody. So just as a reminder, just to kind of lay the groundwork for where we were just looking at, we spent quite a bit of time looking at what the New Testament has to say about this doctrine of imminency. Now, this doctrine being a term that we have come up with in the past few hundred years to explain a phenomenon in the early church, where the early church had an eager, expectant uh, understanding that the Lord could come back at any moment. We saw that through the life of the apostles, the life of Peter, looking forward in their ministries, um, and we saw that continued after. We actually see that in the book of First John, which was written after the destruction of Jerusalem sometime in the mid-90s, which, again, is pretty late in early church history as far as the dates that we know that these books were written. And so as we're looking at that, we, we still see that they're expecting the Lord to come, and this idea of expectation goes from the Thessalonian believers, from the Galatians, all the way until what we would consider to be the end of the canonical period in which we get our New Testament. So we try to explain that and elaborate on what that actually was by looking at the New Testament to see what the New Testament had to say about that. And we spent quite a bit of time exegeting that text in summation form just so we'd be able to come to a common biblical conclusion about what the New Testament had to say. What did we come away with? We came away with this idea that the New Testament, the apostles, as they're writing in the New Testament, had an eager expectation that the Lord could come back at any moment for his church. Hence the doctrine of eminency. Now, we looked at all of the opposing arguments that I felt were noteworthy. We're going to touch on a few more as we get into individual belief systems that are specific to each individual belief system like post-tribulationalism, pre-wrath, mid-trib, all of these other ones, because they each have their own individual arguments. A lot of them share a lot of these arguments. A lot, In fact, pretty much every single one of the alternative perspectives takes that first argument. Um, some of them take the second one. Everybody in the post-trib group takes the third one. So like, We've already done a lot of the groundwork to look into post-tribulationalism and all these other ones. I'm sorry, all these other opinions by looking at the general arguments against our position. Now, again, I think these are the better arguments that would contend with our what we believe to be a natural, organic, native meaning of the text as it pertains to the rapture. So that's the reason that we went through the general arguments. It was to kind of uh, not over-dramatize and marginalize all of these arguments that were against this, but rather we wanted to give 
we wanted to heed those concerns because some of them were valid concerns. Um, because again, I haven't been wrong since the last time I was wrong, right? So we're all going to have these opinions that, that are going to be corrected as we define a more biblical understanding of the text. Now, we believe, <laughs> because the New Testament says it, that there's going to be a rapture. We believe that this rapture is going to be before the tribulational period because there are promises preventing us from entering the tribulational period. Um, promises of exemption from the time of the wrath of God. So because we have those promises, not general guidelines, promises, we choose to trust those promises. And the weed work and all of the minutiae gets figured out in the details. So that's what we're working on, is all of those little smaller details as they pertain to this argument. So why do we believe, as we're about to interact with the post-trib group today, why do we believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? Well, we believe that the description in 1 Thessalonians and the book of John, the Gospel of John and 1 Corinthians, give us this idea of the rapture. We believe in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and 5, as well as Revelation chapter 3, that we're exempt from the time of the wrath of God. And we believe from looking at all of the texts pertaining to the coming of the Lord in the New Testament, which we looked at, um, none of them describe a set of events that need to precede that. The only apparent, I'm saying that on purpose, apparent exception to that would be Matthew 24 as it relates to the coming of the Lord. But it's not talking about the rapture, it's talking about the second coming. That's the reason we spent all that time looking at the distinctions and differences between the two ideas. So we actually believe that there is going to be a pre-tribulation rapture. We are both pre-millennial in the fact that we believe that Jesus will come before the millennium, but we're also pre-tribulational in the fact that we believe he is going to return before the tribulation, specifically for the rapture of the church. So there are four opinions. I would, I would hesitate to call them alternative theories, but these are alternative lines of thought as they pertain to the rapture of the church. There are other ones that are scattered out there um, who would say that they didn't align with any of these or ours, but these are the four that we're going to be looking at for the remainder of this study. So the first one that we're looking at is this idea of the post-tribulational rapture. This is the idea that Jesus is going to come after the tribulational period. Um, the partial rapture theory, it is, I almost didn't put it up here, because if you know anything about the partial rapture theory, um, yeah, we'll get into that later. It's basically the idea that if you're not living, it's, it's like lordship salvation infused on eschatology. If you're not walking with the Lord and staying in fellowship with him, when the rapture takes place, you as a Christian might not go you might be stuck for the tribulational period. So um, the mid-trib is pretty self-explanatory. Abomination of desolation, boom, right? Pre-wrath rapture is a, is a little bit more intricate. The reason I put it at the end is because even though I vehemently disagree with their presupposition, which is that the tribulational period is not entirely in itself the wrath of God, um, they would align closest with the dispensationalist line of viewpoint. They believe in the distinction between Israel and the church. They believe in things like a literal thousand-year kingdom on the earth. They believe in literal interpretation. Um, 
and they make a couple exceptions there that we're going to be looking into when we get to that point. I'm actually looking forward to that portion. So post-trib is a little bit less fun, but that's why I shouldn't say that because we might have people that listen online. Um, one of the things we have to kind of keep in mind is we're looking at these different viewpoints. It's pretty simple. Post-trib rapture perspective is probably, according to the known historical documents we have of early church history, the predominant viewpoint of the church in the history of the church. Um, there, again, you're going to have people like pre-wrath who would disagree with that. They believe that even the, the apostles were pre-wrath. Um, we're also pre-wrath. We just don't agree with the definition that hides behind the label of pre-wrath. But, I mean, as we're looking at this, just kind of keep in mind that this is a, an important subject. We've already talked about why it's important. It's always connected to godly living in the New Testament, both the rapture and the references to the coming of the Lord. But this is also something we, we kind of have to give them a little bit of grace on, because as we look at the post-trib viewpoint and the people that propagate this viewpoint, what you're going to find is that they make very simple, I would consider exegetical mistakes, but I will defend that when we get to that point. Like Matthew 24, the gathering of the elect and things like that. They look at the gathering of the elect as the gathering of the elect, like us, the church, the people of God. And you'll notice that they're very specific in all of their writings to not refer to the church as the church as it pertains to a distinction between the church and Israel. They refer to the church and Israel as the people of God. Yeah, Nancy. Okay, so the question is, can we connect denominations with the post-trib group? I'd say you can. It's pretty popular in reform circles. So in a lot of reform churches, you're going to have people that believe in the post-trib Yes, there are people who are Baptists who are also um, in this post-trib group. There are also people who are Baptists that are in the post-millennial group, which is, an even, which is slightly different from amillennialism. Um, but in any case, yeah, you're going to have different denominations that would kind of focus more on that. But the thing about Baptist churches, and there are reasons we're not a Baptist church, um, but Baptist churches in general, you actually have people from pretty much every part of the viewpoint spectrum. You're going to have people from every single one of these viewpoints, sometimes even in the same church, in the church leadership, uh, because they don't think of it as a critical, as critical of an issue as we think of it as. Um, now, they would disagree with that. They would say that it is, in fact, a critical issue. We're, we're, just, we're just wrong. But uh, just something to kind of keep in mind. As we're looking at this, we have to give people grace because they don't necessarily have the same foundation for proper biblical study that um, we have been blessed to be able to have under Kurt and his teaching. So, yeah, so that's just something to kind of keep in mind as we're looking at these different viewpoints is that they might not have the same background. Here's another example. So as we're looking at, let's just say you're on an island. I always make this example when it pertains to Calvinism. If you are on an island and all you have is a Bible, you're not going to walk away believing in Calvinism. You're not going to walk away believing in the five points of Calvinism that God predestines only a certain few into salvation. You're not going to believe that just reading the Bible. You have to have some Calvinist over your shoulder guiding you through the different examples to come to that conclusion. If you don't have a good biblical foundation for biblical distinctions with the church versus Israel, uh, if you're not like John Nelson Darby, who is 
injured and lying in bed and had nothing better to do than study the Bible, you're, you might not come away with the same viewpoints. You might not see the rapture as being distinct from the second coming. You might not. I believe it's pretty obvious in the text because I've spent a lot of time studying it. You probably think it's obvious because you've studied it and you knew it was there. There are a lot of people, especially as we're going to see in the post-trib group, that don't see the rapture distinct from the second coming because they don't have that biblical foundation for those distinctions. So um, if you didn't really truly, if you started your theological journey and your walk with the Lord reading, uh, let's say the book of James, your idea of soteriology is going to be different than if you started it with the gospel of John. It's why when somebody's wanting to be saved, I don't guide them to the book of James because what is the book of James about? Is it about salvation? What's, what's it about? It's about sanctification. It's about how you walk in light of the fact that you're saved. So again, you have to keep that foundation intact in order to build off of it. And they don't necessarily have that. So let's look at the, we're going to look at a few things as it pertains to the post-trib group. And we're going to kind of, we'll adjust it accordingly as we move forward. But this is going to be the basic outline of how we're going to be looking at this. So we're going to look at the biblical basis, like how do they actually come to their conclusion that there's only one, as they argue, there's only one second coming, right? Uh, we don't actually believe the rapture is a coming or a second coming of the Lord. We actually believe it is an appearing of the Lord where we go to him. Um, he comes, but he doesn't come to the earth. The first coming, one of the main characteristics of that coming is that he was physically bodily on the earth. The second coming is going to be exactly the same in that respect. The coming for the rapture, he doesn't even come to the earth. We appear to him in the clouds. That's the promise that we're given. So anyway, what is the biblical basis for their timing of the rapture? Next, um, how do they support that position? Because every single verse that we give you, we don't give that verse in absence or separated from the rest of the text. We look at it in light of all of the text. That's why we spent so long looking at all of those different verses. So next, how do they handle our timing passages? Now, just so you're aware, when I talk about timing passages, what I'm talking about are the passages that we have that we're privy to that relate to the timing of the rapture. So what has to happen first? Nothing. What can't happen tribulational period before we get raptured. So how do they handle those passages? That's going to be one of the things we look at this morning, if we have enough time. And next, our analysis of that position in light of scripture. So we, having looked at what they believe, having looked at the reasons why they believe it, having interacted with those reasons, how does it measure with what we know in light of scripture? So that's really what we're trying to accomplish here. So initial thoughts. Now there are several ways we could go about analyzing their position. We could read nine 500 page books, or um, we could pick and choose what I would again consider to be the best arguments for their position by the people they look up to, the people that they build their doctoral dissertations off of, the references that they use the most often, these people that have done the groundwork. So if I'm trying to defend dispensationalism, or let's say I'm trying to attack it. That's actually a better example. Let's say I'm trying to attack dispensationalism. Who do I go to? Well, I could go to Darby, and I could lie about his entire upbringing because I don't know anything. Or 
I could talk about Charles Ryrie because Charles Ryrie is really the person who wrote what most people would consider to be the greatest work on the subject of dispensationalism in the last century. So I'd probably go after him. I'd probably use his opinions. Now, Ryrie, if you've ever read Ryrie at length, is very good at presenting an opinion in light of a lot of scripture. So, and what's more is that in certain points where he can't be adamant, he becomes slightly ambiguous for good reason, because there are going to be objections. And his goal is to show people a biblical foundation for understanding the differences and distinctions between the ages or the economies of God. And he wants to keep them reading the book so that they actually get that biblical understanding. He doesn't want them throwing the book in the trash. So anyway, I would go after him. So that's kind of what we're doing here. We're not going after anybody per se, but what we are is we're going to these people that I would consider to be probably the best examples of propagators of this position. Because uh, we don't want to misrepresent them. We wanna we, we're trying to search for understanding. We want to understand what they think so that we can interact with it. We're not, we're not just trying to bash them. If you want that, there are people on YouTube who, who, do, who do just that. Um, we're not looking to do that because... What does the New Testament tell us about unity in the church? We're supposed to search for unity. Um, if we, there are going to be times where we could draw a distinction and uh, make a mountain out of a molehill on every single little issue, but what, that wouldn't accomplish unity, which would then dissuade us and separate us from our goal in Christ, which is to do what? To train saints in righteousness, give them a biblical understanding, give them the armor of God so that they understand how to interact with a sinful world in light of the fact that they've been saved and then equip them to go out to be used by God to save those people so that that process may repeat. And there are micro uh, reasons for that too, like being aware that the coming of the Lord could happen at any moment. So we ought to actually do that, right? So we don't want to divide on those issues and then make it so that there's no groundwork to actually accomplish the goal God gave us. So that being said, uh, monologue over. Well, that, that monologue over. I have another one planned. So, <laughs> um, so really what we want to do is we want to weigh their theological perspective against the canon of Scripture. And that's the word for canon, just so you're aware, it means measuring line. So when we talk about weighing something against the measuring line of Scripture, that's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about seeing how it actually aligns with the majority of Scripture. There's not a single theological viewpoint here, where is it, that doesn't have questions, that doesn't have spots where, oh, I'm not 100% sure about A, B, C, or D. Okay, you're never going to come to a theological viewpoint on almost any subject, right? Because um, there are exceptions to that, where we are 100% sure in every possible avenue of that particular subject that we're 100% right. So that being said, we just kind of have to keep that in mind. We, it's important to be humble, too, as we're observing their thoughts in light of Scripture. So initial comments that I have on a post-tribulational rapture. Though this isn't the case everywhere, because you're going to have post-trib people who are actually even preterists, um, interestingly enough. They're primarily premillennial, at least in a traditional sense, in their expectation of eschatology. So what that basically means is that they believe um, in a lot of the similar things that we believe, okay? They believe that there is a distinction between 
Israel and the church, sometimes, okay, there's a caveat with every single one of these statements. Um, but they also believe that there is going to be, for the most part, again, disclaimers, uh, a seven-year tribulational period, Daniel's 70th week. And after that, they, for the most part, believe there's going to be a millennial kingdom. Now, that's just something to keep in mind because that would put a lot of uh, traditional dispensationalists in a similar group. And you can look them up. There are people from all walks of life that believed in all sorts of things over time. Um, that being said, they will commonly hold to a normative distinction between Israel and the church, though they deny their independence of identity would separate their usefulness and the purpose for the plan of God. We're going to be getting into that idea pretty deeply as we look at their subject. Um, because that really pertains to this transitionary period in the book of Acts. And the basic argument is, well, we all agree that there was a transition, right, between Israel, God just using Israel, Gentiles would have to go into Israel in order to be used by him. Um, and this idea of Israel being transitioned into this idea of the church, where we see that the partition was broken down in Ephesians chapter 2 and 3, and they're one in Christ in terms of their ability to come before the Father. So they look at that, that transitionary period, who was God using? Was he using Jews or was he using Gentiles? He's using both. So that's their basic argument as well. He was using both of them during this tran transitory time period. So why can't he use both of them during the transitory time period between the church age and the millennial kingdom that we call the seven-year tribulation? So we're going to be looking at that pretty deeply and looking at and weighing that on the basis of scripture as well. Now, um, this is going to be the point that makes you kind of wonder if they read a lot of the, uh, the description we have of the tribulational period in the book of Revelation. Because they actually see this time period, this time of Jacob's trouble, this seven-year tribulation, as a time period in which Christians are protected from the wrath of God. Now, interestingly enough, I would wonder how that even happens, because what do we have in the book of Revelation? We have all these descriptions of martyrs during the tribulational period. These, I mean, if the stars are falling from heaven, how protected are you? Um, so there, we're going to be looking at that in a lot more detail, so I'm not going to kind of spoil our fun ahead of time, even though I'm kind of doing that. But these are just some initial comments, initial points of concern or uh, differentiation as we're moving forward. Now, they also see the second coming being an event where Christians who are alive and remain at the end of the tribulation are caught up to be with the Lord and then escort him down to earth where they will always be with the Lord. Now, this is where their premillennial side kicks in because they believe that we're escorting him to the kingdom. And so we're going to be looking at the reasons why they believe that. Um, it's actually based upon the Greek form of the words. We're going to be looking at that to see if what they're saying is actually true. But just kind of keep in mind, those are just some initial points. The first question we need to ask on any alternative viewpoint on the rapture is how do they handle these three verses? Because when we're trying to figure out what the rapture is, when we're asking that question, we go to these three verses. They go to these three as, as well. So that being said, I have a few quotes that I want to go through. And by that, I mean, we're probably going to finish just reading quotes because there's so many. Um, 
But generally speaking, if you're looking for a traditional defense on post-tribulationalism, you will go to either Douglas Moo, who's very good on this subject. He's a propagator of that particular viewpoint. Or you'll go to someone like Robert Gundry, Bob Gundry. He's also very good. He's written some very in-depth books defending uh, the post-tribulation rapture perspective. Um, and no book would be, I think Douglas Moo's paper, it's like a 40-page paper on this, is for free online. So I would welcome you to read that if you really want to know what their thoughts are on the post-trib rapture. You'll get a summary here. Now, the first quote, uh, I didn't write which website this is off of. This is off of a general attack website, is what I like to call them. Uh, targeted articles specifically against the pre-trib rapture. And this gentleman, who I apologize for not writing the name up there, said it would be appropriate to begin our study of these texts with what are deemed to be the three principal scriptures revealing the rapture, John 14, 1 Corinthians 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4. That will be our three verses. Since our study of the nature of the trib has revealed nothing that would necessitate the removal of the church during that period, and the important terms used to describe the second advent give no indication that anything other than a post-tribulational event is envisioned, we would expect to find in these texts a clear indications of a pre-tribulational aspect of the advent, if such an aspect exists. Uh, Preston Highlands Baptist Church on their website that they create for their church members to give them advanced studying type things says that John 14 verse 3 makes more sense on a post-tribulational understanding. Jesus says, if I go and prepare a place for you, watch really carefully what he does. Um, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The pre-trib view takes this to mean that believers will go to heaven with Jesus as soon as Jesus returns. But the idea that believers will go to heaven with Jesus for a short time and then come to the earth with Jesus seems to be stretching what the text teaches. One scholar says the pre-trib interpretation would require us to believe that the church will occupy heavenly mansions for a short period of seven years, only to vacate them for a thousand years. There is no inherent difficulty involved in a scenario where believers rise to meet the Lord in the air and immediately return to earth with him. The text does not say that believers will go directly to heaven with Jesus, but only that they will always be with the Lord. Now we're going to do this uh, in a very specific way as we're looking at these quotes. I want to analyze these on the fly, just give our general opinions and our thoughts on them, and then we're going to move forward and do it in bullet point form. So if you can turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 14, that's where we're going to start today. Because a couple of those things are really important, and I want us to be... A have a heightened awareness of what they're doing with this text. So let's just read verses one through three in John chapter 14. It says, do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. We'll come back to that. If it were not so, I would have told you for I go to prepare a place for you. If that word is probably the most important one in this entire verse. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and you know the way where I'm going. So first point he says is that it, they're asserting that it seems to be stretching what the text teaches to say that we're going back to the Father's house. 
to going back to heaven, which works off of the presupposition that follows, because he also says that there is no inherent difficulty involved in a scenario where believers rise to meet the Lord in the air and then immediately return to earth with him. Okay, let's, let's test that. Where does it say that we're going to return to earth with Jesus in this text? Okay, it doesn't. Yeah, it's nowhere in the text. So when we're looking at this and they're saying that there's no inherent difficulty, I'm finding a pretty big difficulty in that in the fact that it's absent from the text. What isn't absent? Well, what isn't absent is that he's promising to go to the Father's house, right? Not only to go there, but to make dwelling places. What did we learn when we looked at the word for dwelling places in the Greek? It doesn't mean a mansion. That's KJV's rendering of it. It means a temporary dwelling place. So why would he make us a temporary dwelling place? Well, it's pretty easy to figure out if you know what happens after the tribulational period. But, which is what? Revelation 19. We come with the Lord in Armageddon. Now, he's saying, if it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. So there's actually a specific reason in which he is going that he's saying. This is, we're not stretching the text. We're just looking at what it's saying. And what is he saying? He's saying, having just laid out the idea that I am going to prepare a place for you, if I go and prepare a place for you. Okay, he did that. It's, that's how an if-then clause works, right? We have the if portion done. He's gone to prepare a place for us. I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, there you may be also. If I go to prepare temporary heavenly dwelling places for you, I will come again and not take you to them. That, that's essentially what they're saying. So when we're looking at this verse, I mean, it's, it sounds kind of good if you're not l- reading John 14 when you're reading that, but this is what happens when your entire theological presupposition is that there is only one coming of the Lord as it pertains to the end of time. Now, we, again, we could go back into the disclaimers and say that we also believe there's one coming of the Lord, because when we're talking about the coming as it pertains to the context of that conversation, we're talking about him physically coming to the earth. We also believe that he's talking about taking specific people to heaven, which seems to be a sticking point because that doesn't really align with what we're talking about in Revelation 19 about him coming to the earth or Matthew 24. That's also not included in that verse. In fact, what does he say? He doesn't say, I'm going to gather the elect, which we understand is Israel. That's why we spent all the time studying that from the four corners of the earth to then take them to Jerusalem, or I'm sorry, to take them up to, up to me and then take them back down. He says quite the opposite. And we know that they're being gathered for the entrance into the millennial kingdom. We studied that in quite a lot of detail. Douglas Moo is a little bit more refined with his process. Um, He says, in the farewell discourse of John's gospel, Jesus seeks to prepare his disciples for the time of his physical absence from them. In John 14, verses 1 through 4, Jesus encourages them by asserting that his going to the Father is for the purpose of preparing a place for them in the Father's many dwelling places, and that he will come again and receive them to himself. In order that where I am, there you may be also. It is almost certain that the latter verse describes the second advent and rapture. Because again, they're one event, right? Because what happens is, and just so you're aware, as we're reading this, it's not conspicuous as you're reading that. But when they talk about the second advent, 
What they really mean is he takes all the believers off the earth to be with him. Then he rains destruction so that they're not privy for the wrath of God. Because again, they're making a distinction about when the wrath of God is happening. So that's the uh, context that he's looking at this through. So that being said, it is almost certain that the latter verse describes the second advent and rapture. But there is no indication in the text that any coming other than the post-tribulational one described elsewhere in the New Testament is in Jesus's mind. The fact that believers at a, po- a post-trib rapture would rise to meet the Lord in the air only to return immediately to the earth with him creates no difficulty. For the text does not state that believers will go directly to heaven, but only that they will always be with the Lord. If it, if it be argued that this is the inference of the text, it is hard to see how any other view can offer, more, offer a more reasonable scenario. As Gundry says, again, he's quoting Robert Gundry, who's the other person we're going to look at. The pre-tribulational interpretation would require us to believe that the church will occupy heavenly mansions for a short period of seven years, only to vacate them for a thousand years. Neither is it true that a promise of deliverance only after the severe stress, distress of the tribulation could not be a comfort to the disciples. The blessed hope of being reunited with the risen Lord is surely a comfort no matter what believers have previously experienced. Thus, John 14 offers no indication at at all of the time of the rapture. What did he not deal with as he was talking about John 14? The empty dwelling places sitting doing nothing in heaven after Jesus takes us to the earth. And this is going to be a common uh, line of thought or common kind of hole that they just kind of stand in front of while they're talking and then walk away from that we're going to be interacting with with post-tribulationalism is that it's, I mean, what you have to spiritualize it, which is one of the main reasons people through church history and random groups would actually say that that's what happened. Once you die, Jesus takes you to heaven in the place that he prepared for you, right? It's why if you go to a lot of funerals, they're going to read John chapter 14, which I, if it's applied correctly, that's great. But you have to work with first Thessalonians in order to put it to the context of the dead taking part in the resurrection. That's why we look at all three of those. The rapture is probably the best topic to talk about at a funeral because that's the next time you're going to see that person if you are in the rapture generation. If you're not, you'll see them in heaven while you await the rapture. So again, I can't think of a better topic than 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 20 through 23, and then bumping over to verses 50 through 54 as it pertains to the rapture because that's when we actually get that uh, discussion about our resurrected bodies. So that being said, notice that he ignores the idea of the dwelling places while actually entertaining it through half of his discussion here. So just kind of keep that in mind. We're going to see that a lot. Um, He says the text does not state that believers will go directly to heaven, but that they will always be with the Lord. Okay, but where, where is the Lord? Did he come to the earth to take us? No. He was in the clouds, according to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And where are we going? Are we meeting him at the earth or are we meeting him in the clouds? We're meeting him in the clouds. Why? Because the promise is to do what? Verses 1 through 3. I will come and receive you to myself. Where is myself? In those heavenly dwelling places. That's what he's promising. Um, Again, the fact they also never, ever, 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 ever talk 
about the fact that these are temporary dwelling places. So when we're looking at this, just kind of keep that in mind. Um, he goes on, and we're going to be looking at Douglas Moo quite a bit. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, so, okay, so we can actually bump over there. I actually have this lined up so we can look at um, all three of our main verses in order. I took the quotes a little bit. I jumped them around a little bit just so it would be easier for us to follow. 1 Corinthians 15, which is the resurrection chapter of the Bible, is what a lot of people will refer to it as. So we're going to actually be in starting in verse 50, making our way to 54. So he says that in 1 Corinthians 15, it is Paul's purpose to indicate how living saints can enter the kingdom at the last day, even though flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. To do so, he affirms that while we, believers in general, will not all die, we will be all changed, whether living or dead. That Paul calls this a trans... <laughs> that doesn't make any sense. Uh, Paul calls this, a trans- this transformation a mystery, indicating nothing about who will participate in, in it. Look at that very closely. He says that Paul calls this transformation a mystery, indicating nothing about who's going to participate in this. Why does he say that? Because if he can make the church not a mystery unknown people in the Old Testament, then he can actually jump them in with Israel and jump us in in the tribulational period because we're the people of God. I'm kind of cheating. I know he does that later in his paper. Um, But just keep in mind, that's the reason he's so specific with his wording here is because it, yeah, because it creates that admission. Um, is the church a mystery? Yeah, because the church isn't spoken of at all in the Old Testament. The idea of the Gentiles getting blessed is certainly spoken of in the Old Testament, as early as the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, go to Genesis 12, 13, 15, and 17, and 22, if you want to know more about that. That being said, we'll continue. And then he says, and in quoting an Old Testament verse, Isaiah 25, verse 8, with reference to the resurrection of the church saints in this context, Paul may be indicating, may be being important because he can't make this definitively. We'll look at that later. Paul may be indicating his belief that Old Testament saints participate in this change, in this rapture change. Because if you can make the only resurrection to happen being the one of Old Testament saints in the future, then there is no resurrection. There's no point in the rapture before the trib. So just keep that in mind. This is where they're going with their position. And this is why I actually think post-trib is the easiest to argue against. And that's why we're going to be looking at it in detail first. I think it's a stepping stone to looking at the other viewpoints because it takes us from the end of the trib and it works our way back to pre-trib. Um, again, we'll look at this in a lot more detail later. He says, um, where were we? Further indication that this transformation involves Old Testament saints and cannot thereby be limited to a separate event for the church saints is found in the reference to the last trumpet. You're going to know more about the last trumpet by the time we're done with post-tribulationalism than you wanted to know, just, just so you're aware. So we'll hold off on that for later. As commentators note, this does not refer to the last in a series. 
necessarily, but to the last trumpet that ushers in the last day. And this trumpet is a feature of the Old Testament day of the Lord, at which time at which the time the Jewish nation experiences final salvation and judgment. The Isianic reference is particularly suggestive inasmuch as the sounding of the great trumpet is associated with the gathering up of the Israelites one by one. This is probably a description of the gathering of Israel in preparation for entrance of the millennial kingdom, an event that is always post-tribulational. We agree with that point, right? Matthew 24, the gathering of the elect. He's gathering all of Israel to enter the kingdom from the four corners of the earth. Prophesied in the Old Testament, reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 24. Um, I digress. We'll continue. Furthermore, it is probable that the trumpet here in 1 Corinthians 15 is the same as the one mentioned in Matthew 24, 31. That's where he messes it up. Um, For when one finds only one reference throughout Jesus' teaching to a trumpet, and it is associated with the gathering of the elect into the kingdom, and further finds Paul making reference to the transformation of ships or saints in preparation for the kingdom when he mentions a trumpet, the parallel can hardly be ignored. But the trumpet found in Matthew 24, 31 is manifestly post-tribulational. Thus, while dogmatism is unwarranted, that's the point he makes. That's the, uh, I have a doctorate, so I make this disclaimer. <laughs> while dogmatism is unwarranted, the reference to the last trumpet in 1, Thessalonians, or 1 Corinthians would suggest that the transformation Paul describes takes place at the end when the Jewish nation experiences his eschatological salvation after the tribulation. So this is going to be something we're going to be looking into in a lot more detail later, because Again, if you can say this is the last trumpet, that's the last trumpet, why would we think of anything different? That's actually not a bad line of thought for literal interpretation. But the problem is it presupposes, first, the point that he alluded to in the beginning of this quote, which is that there's kind of a synonymous nature to Israel and the church as it pertains to this time period. But what it also does is it makes this base assumption that God can only have one last trumpet. Now, why would we ever think that if it says last trumpet in one place and last trumpet in another, that they'd be distinct trumpets? Well, we look at the context of what they're used in, what their purpose in, is in, and what they, yeah, what they actually do. So we'll look at that a little bit later. So th- we'll call this an introduction to the post-trib rapture. That's where we're at right now as it pertains to this study. I'm just trying to dip our toes into this so to speak, just so we can kind of get a good grasp on where they're coming from. Now, he made a lot of, he mentioned a lot of verses here. We're going to measure whether or not they're doing this in light of scripture, whether or not this is a legitimate quotation of the Old Testament as it pertains to the subject. And then we're going to weigh and measure exactly what they're doing and see if it aligns with scripture. So at a minimum, when they have a positional point that makes sense in light of scripture, perhaps we could use it to refine what we consider to be a biblical understanding. When they're very much in opposition to the basic, literal, contextual, historical method of interpretation, we are going to call them out for that as we move forward. Um, Because if I were just presenting the post-trip perspective on the rapture, we'd be here for about 20 weeks, just looking at their writing. Nobody in this church can handle that. I can't. I can't handle that. That's way too much post-trib. So what we're doing instead is I'm giving you certain quotations relating to 
each of the individual viewpoints just so you can know kind of what they think. Then we're going to look at why they believe them, and then we're going to figure out whether or not they're true. So um, we're going to end for today there. And it's going to be kind of slow going like this as we ease our way into the subject. But just so you're aware, this is, this is pretty important stuff. I mean, we may, in our normal social circles, we probably don't interact with a lot of post-trib people. For whatever reason, I interact with a lot of them. So I don't know why, um, but it's valuable for me because it gives me a good perspective on their thought process. So that's part of what I'm trying to do. That's part of the reason I'm also trying to be fair, just in case they accidentally find our, our <laughs> Facebook page. Um, it would be awkward if I were talking smack about them. So, plus, that we're, that's not what we're trying to do, right? We're trying to just measure and learn more about the subject as it pertains to God's word, right? So let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your promises in the New Testament. That's something we're trying to focus on as we're learning more about you, as we're learning more about your word. Um, are there specific promises that you've made us? You gave us several promises during your ministry, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the promise of Pentecost, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, the work of the helper in our lives in the upper room. You gave us all these promises, and all of those things came true. Every single thing you've ever said, Lord, has been absolutely true down to a T. And so we know that everything pertaining to the end, everything pertaining to our lives, the purpose in our lives, the people we're trying to minister to, um, the holiness we're supposed to exhibit with our lifestyle. All of these things are designed for a purpose. And we know that at the end times, all the things that you also promised while you were on earth are going to also come true. So I ask that you help us to truly understand your promises, um, not just about the present, Lord, but specifically about the future. Because as we know what's going to happen in the future, and we know the good things that are going to happen, uh, we also know the people that will be excluded from those good things. We also know the people that aren't going to be able to take place in the fellowship we are going to have with you for eternity because they're separated from you, because they don't have the same positional righteousness imputed to them as do we by your blood, through your faith, by grace, and everything that you did for us. So I ask that you help us to really have an eternal perspective. If, if we get nothing from our study here at all, from the study of the rapture, the study of Revelation, um, I ask that you give us a good biblical, eternal perspective about the state of other people and give us a heart for them. I pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. And I have about 15 quotes like that where that one came from. So I expect there to be no one here next week. <laughs>